0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. That's where we were at last week. We're going to jump around here to a few different passages. It's going to be some interesting stuff today, so I just want to encourage you to buckle up, okay? Maybe grab your seatbelt, pretend to lock it into place. Here we go. By the way, we don't have airbags here, so just hang on. But we're going to be jumping around a little bit. And if you don't have your Bible with you, there's one in the pew there in front of you. Feel free to grab that. If you have your phone with you, just flip to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to share a prayer here over the scripture, over our children's ministry. And so would you please just bow your heads with me again here for a word of prayer before we spend time in the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, this time in your word. Father, I pray that you'd settle our hearts, quiet our hearts, quiet this place, quiet homes that are tuning in online. I pray, Father, that you would just speak so powerfully this morning. We ask for your anointing and your blessing. Help us to receive and respond. And Father, we thank you for all the kids in this place today. We ask for a blessing upon their ministries today. Lord, guide and lead the teachers and those who are just loving on those kids. We pray for your grace upon them right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time together of worship in your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we start reading from Matthew chapter 1, I want to kind of recap a little bit from last week. I still have these signs up here. If you remember me saying that in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said, I've not come for those who think they're righteous, I've come for those who know that they're sinners. And so there's this shift that Jesus brings in recognizing that getting right with God is not by the things that I've done. You don't sort of elevate yourself into the kingdom of God by the things that you do. Jesus came and absolutely crushed that. And it's by what He did. By the blood of Jesus Christ, you're made right with God. And so we also looked at this broken vessel, and I said each week I'll kind of start piecing it back together. We've got a little bit of a piecing back together here and some other pieces that'll join in in that process here as we continue in this series. And I think it's interesting. We have all of these shattered pieces Underneath the what I've done sign. I don't know about you, but have you ever been shattered into pieces by something you did? Or by something others maybe did to you? And as we piece this back together, it's going to be on the side of things that God did. And God pieces and heals the broken back together. And so last week I talked about this genealogy that Matthew begins with and it might seem like maybe a boring way to start out his particular gospel but there's a reason for this and we started walking through that he's writing to a Jewish audience and one of the main things that they're going to want to know is is Jesus related to King David is he in the line of King David because if you say he's the Messiah he needs to be linked to King David so we emphasize that that's something he's trying to prove to them right out the gate And I also said that in history, whenever we'd be breaking down a genealogy of a king, typically in history, the writers of this would try to elevate the genealogy. they try to make it as prestigious as possible, and they would often only have males listed in the genealogy. And there's a shift that Matthew does almost right out the gate. He starts including women in the genealogy, but he's also including these stories, these accounts of some pretty messed up people. And it would cause you to pause and go, Matthew, what are you doing? If we're trying to elevate Christ, why are you picking people to be listed in this genealogy who have some junk and who have some things going on in their life? And so let's pick up there from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And we're going to stop reading there in Matthew chapter 1, and I want you to go to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and go to chapter 38. We're going to look at the account and the story of Tamar. And if you've never heard this story before, just want to tell you right now, it's a little bit twisted. It's a little bit messed up. Okay. As we read through this, I want you to know, this is not stuff that we endorse as a church. Okay? But one thing you need to know is there's people in the Bible that are broken, and they have weird and messed up stories, but God can still be at work in the midst of the mess. So Genesis 38, to kind of bring you up to speed a little bit, Judah gets married, and he starts having kids, and the first three are boys. The first one's name is Ur. How many of you have a cousin, Ur? E-R, Ur. The next one's name was Onan, and then the third one's name was Shelah. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry this young woman named Tamar. Now, the Bible says that Ur did something evil in the Lord's sight, and then he died. And so it was the custom of the time that if your brother's wife would become a widow and your brother passed away, it was on you to then marry that woman so she wasn't a widow anymore. Just a part of the Jewish culture and the things that they did. So Onan marries Tamar, but he refuses to have children with her, and the Lord sees that as evil in his sight. And Onan dies. She's now a widow for a second time. There's still that third son, Sheila. And let's pick up in verse 11 here. It says, Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Sheila is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Sheila would die also, like his other two sons. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Now some years later, Judah's wife died, and after the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira the Adulamite went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. And someone told Tamar, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And so Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, that be that third son, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. And Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute. You can kind of see where this is going. Verse 16 Judah stopped and propositioned her, not realizing that this really was his daughter in law. And the price that was being discussed was a goat. Seems kind of strange. But he didn't have the goat with him, so he gave her some collateral or a guarantee that I will get this goat to you. But in the meantime, here's my signet ring with cord, and here's my walking stick, my rod and my staff. This is given to you as collateral, and we'll get this goat to you in the meantime. So that exchange takes place, and everything after that, it's all sounding very twisted, isn't it? Verse 19, after all of this, she went back home, took off her veil, and then she put back on her widow's clothing, as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend Hira the Adulamite to take the young goat "'to the woman and pick up the things that he had given her "'as a guarantee or collateral, but Hira couldn't find her. "'So he asked the men who lived there, "'Where can I find this shrine prostitute "'that was sitting beside the road at the entrance of Enam?' "'He says, "'We've never had a shrine prostitute here,' they replied. "'So Hira returned to Judah and told him, "'I couldn't find her anywhere, and the men of the village "'claimed they've never had a shrine prostitute there.'" Well, then let her keep her things that I gave her. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but if you couldn't find her, we'd be the laughing stock of the village if we went back to look for her again. So Judah thinks this transaction's over, and we move on with life. But verse 24 takes an interesting, interesting turn. you have any guesses on maybe what happens? Yeah says, three months later, Judah was told that Tamar, your daughter-in-law, she's acted like a prostitute. And now, because of this, she's pregnant. So Judah gets mad, and he says, bring her out and let her be burned. Let's put her at the stake. This was wrong. But as they're taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. She says, the man who owns these things made me pregnant. What do you think she has? She has that ring. She has that walking stick. And who does that belong to? Belongs to Judah. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? And Judah's like, oh man. Judah recognized them immediately, and he says, She's more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to get married to my son, Sheila. The Bible says that Judah never slept with Tamar again. But you know that they're about to have a baby. But if you roll a little bit further into this, they actually have twins twins. And when the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins and she was in labor. One of the babies reached out his hand. I think this is just kind of amusing. The midwife grabbed it, tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist and announcing, this is the one that came out first. But then he pulled his hand back in and out came his brother. And his name was Perez. And he's in the line of Jesus. We look at all these stories and you would think, if we're trying to pick some of the most prestigious here to be listed in this genealogy, it's like, Matthew, you started with one of the most twisted. Matthew, this is messed up. Like, if we're listing things and we're pulling out stories that maybe aren't the best this is one that you're probably going to want to hide, right? I don't want anybody to know that unless that's the point that the Holy Spirit is trying to make through Matthew as he's writing out this genealogy. And God's saying, I don't care how twisted your life might be, I can still use all of that and still find a way to bring me glory. Roll back to Matthew chapter 1 with me, if you would. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nation. Nation was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And we'll stop right there, and we're going to look at her story But anybody know what Rahab's occupation was? A prostitute. We're listing this again. Go with me now to Joshua chapter 2. It's about the sixth book of the Bible. Joshua 2. If you know this story. Joshua is leading the Israelites into this promised land, and one of the first cities that they're looking at taking over is Jericho. And there's these walls that surround the city, right? And before this is all going to take place, Joshua says, I think we need to send a couple spies in to see what's going on and to assess this battle before it's going to take place. And so picking up here in verse 1, it says, "...Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. And he instructed them, Scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out, and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, Some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land." So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Now Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, Yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the city gates were about to close, and I don't know where they went. But if you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. And actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River, and as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. And before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up onto the roof to talk with them. There's a very interesting conversation taking place with Rahab the prostitute and these two Israelite spies. She says, I know the Lord has given you this land. She's well aware of who the Israelites are and how God is at work through them. She says, we've heard about the story of this red sea that parted and you guys went through. We've heard that story. That's miraculous. And what's interesting in her conversation here, she talks about how their hearts have melted in fear. And in verse 11, I think this is the moment where you see Rahab's faith. You've got to understand the Canaanite people had all kinds of gods. All kinds of gods. And look at what she says in verse 11. She says, For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Rahab recognizes who God is. And she asked them, basically, when you come, would you please spare me and spare my family when you take this city over? And the spies said, we offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety. She says, if you won't betray us, we'll keep that promise and we'll be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land and Rahab helps them escape, and if you turn to Joshua chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 22 through 25, but leading up to this moment, the spies come back, they're ready to take over the city, and instead of grabbing all their weapons, Joshua's like, grab your sneakers, because we're going to go for a walk. And they walk around this city once a day for six days, and then on that seventh day, they walk around this thing seven times, and on that seventh time, let's all just shout, let's blow the trumpets, and the walls of this city start to crumble, and they fall. This is their fortified city. That was a means of protection around a city. The walls fall, in they go, and they start taking things over. Verse 22 here in chapter 6, it says, Meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, Keep your promise, go to the prostitute's house, and bring her out, along with all her family. The men who had been spies went in and brought Rahab out, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her, and they moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. Her faith saves her and her family. Then the Israelites burned the town and everything in it. The only things that were made from silver, gold, and bronze, and iron were kept for the treasury of the Lord's house. So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies that Joshua had sent to Jericho. Look at this in verse 25. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. So as this is being written, Rahab's now in their camp. Not only is she this sinful prostitute, folks, she is a Canaanite prostitute. That's like a double whammy. These were evil people. And now this Canaanite prostitute is in the Israelite camp. And God's allowing this. By his grace. And one day there's this man named Salmon that must have saw her and thought, I wonder if she'd like to have some coffee. And then things seem to progress here. And they get married. And then they have this boy named Boaz. Another common name that you see, Right? But look how God is at work, even in some messed up situations. These kinds of stories make me think of labels. Rahab, the prostitute, Tamar, her label for a while was the widow. Then with her story, it became The Prostitute. And here's the thing. Just as there were labels then, there's labels now. Perhaps some names we can think of. You wonder what kind of labels we have today. Maybe it's Gary the Gambler. walking around through life with that on his spirit. Angie the angry. Larry the luster. Gloria the gossip. Faith the unfaithful. These are some labels that we can maybe be wearing here this day. And what's interesting with all of this is did Matthew have a label? Matthew the, the tax collector. Why didn't you say Matthew the disciple? Yeah, that's because we run to that label that we know. Why didn't you say Matthew the Forgiven? You said tax collector. You see how we throw those labels on ourselves and other people? Rahab is one of only two women that is listed in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Even though she had a label, God says, I can use this. And it's not like the label has to be ripped off for the Lord to come and say, now I'll work with you. God comes right in when the label's still on you and he says, I'm going to get to work. I'm going to take these broken pieces and I'm going to put them back together. So I started this service with this story of this woman who's caught in adultery. We don't know if she's a prostitute also. We just know that she's caught in the act. Now think of that. These religious leaders caught her in the act and then drug her out in front of this crowd. Think of the shame. Think of the label. And all this stuff is going on. And what is this woman thinking? They're going to stone me to death. And I probably deserve it because... Adultery deserves this kind of penalty according to the law at the time. And Jesus sees mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness upon this lady. And he tells those religious leaders, You who are without sin cast the first stone. And one by one they drop their rocks and they leave. And Jesus says, Is anyone left here condemning you? And she says no, and he says, well, neither do I. Folks, we need to understand that God is not a God of condemnation. That's the enemy. Satan wants to condemn you, but God wants to set you free from that condemnation. But God also wants to see you walking in a life free from the bondage of sin. And he tells this woman that he had compassion on, I don't condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. And Jesus says that to us, no matter what the label is. I'm here to meet with you, I'm not condemning you, but it's time to leave whatever sin issue that might be. So a question I asked last week is, why would Matthew include these kinds of people, these broken people in Jesus' genealogy? And it's because all along, God has chosen to use broken people. Unworthy people. People who are sinners. Any sinners in here with me right now? You can raise your hand at home too if you feel you are. We have some sinners, lawbreakers. But by God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness, he restores us. Matthew one we we're going to name this child Jesus because he came to save people from their sins. You want a label this morning? I'm going to be handing labels out to you at the end of the service if you would like this label. But I want you to walk out today with this label that simply says, Forgiven. Forgiven. Last night we had people saying, I'll take two of those, please right? But that's the label that God wants to put onto our life and say, let's move away from these things that drag you down, these areas of sin, because I have so much more for you. Know that you're forgiven and start walking in this relationship that I've designed for you to have. Will you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for this word today. These are some stories here, Lord, that seem very difficult, maybe a little messed up or twisted, but the reality of it is here today, 2020, there are lives that are walking through things that are pretty messed up or twisted or there's sin issues and struggles, but Lord, you break through that with your grace, your mercy, your compassion. You extend that hand of forgiveness and you say, we can put all these pieces back together again to the glory of God. Perhaps there's someone listening today that you know you don't have a right relationship With God, because you've never asked for forgiveness of your sin and asked to receive Jesus Christ into your life. And here in this moment, I want to lead anyone that's listening that would desire that relationship. I want to lead you into that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so I ask that you'd pray with me right now in your heart if you desire to receive Him and just simply say, Jesus. Today I surrender my life to you. And I ask for forgiveness of my sin. Cleanse me. Make me new. And take my broken life. Piece it back together. And help me to live for you. I thank you for this gift of salvation that's received today by grace through faith. Thank you for being my Lord and my Savior. And now with every head bowed and eye closed, I just want to acknowledge this moment. If there's somebody in this room today or listening right now and you prayed that prayer to receive Christ, could you just acknowledge that with me simply by lifting your hand up and then you can put it right back down. Is there anyone right now that prayed that prayer to receive Christ? Just simply lift your hand. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Just acknowledging this holy moment. Father, I thank you for those that are reaching out to you by faith. I ask that you would bless them. Bless them in this desire to live a relationship with you. Father, for all of us listening, a great application point to today's message is to realize that there are broken and hurting people all around us, and that this message at Christmas, that Christ came to save people from their sin, help us to take this message, this good news, to those that we connect with, and engage with in the days ahead. And Father, even if we're saved, there's still sometimes things that happen in our life where we're literally broken into pieces. And I pray, Father, that you would come and you'd piece these things back together. We ask for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are at work And we lift this to you now in Jesus' name, amen.